0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Good morning. I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. The book of Acts It's where we are this morning. If you don't know where Acts is, it's okay to look in your table of contents. It's in the New Testament. So after you get there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts 19. If this is your first Sunday here, we are studying the book of Acts, going through it. Thought by thought, we're back in it again here in chapter 19. And you're going to notice something, that the uh, what is on the screen is different than what's in your bulletin, as far as what we're going to cover. need to explain to you the uh, the journey I went through this week, originally had looked at Acts 19 verses 1 through 22 and found that that was a, a great section. You can see uh, God overcoming all kinds of, of, of problems in, uh, in, in Ephesus. He's overcoming error, he's overcoming the spiritual world, he's overcoming the human heart. You could just see the power of God being manifested. And in... So I wrote the sermon. I you know, wrote that whole sermon, Acts 19 1 through 22. Yesterday I was sitting down like I normally do on Saturdays and kind of reviewing things. And, and one of the things that hit me was that this passage is really practical for us. And, and I think a really powerful passage for uh, us to consider what is, what is there and for us to think through the truths that are there. And so I decided to kind of hit the brakes and only preach the first point. okay, And, and just to kind of just take this maybe in two weeks, possibly three, who knows, but uh, just spending a little bit of time because of the importance of it. I think it's really a, a very uh, timely passage for us because many of the things that Paul had to encounter in Ephesus are things we encounter in our world today. We encounter people who have error. We encounter somebody who comes up to us and says something to us, and, and, and maybe they they are Christians, maybe they're searching out Christianity, and they come up and they say something to you, and you hear it, and you go, ooh, that's bad. And you don't know how to respond. And and you don't know what to say at that moment. Besides, what are you saying, right? And and you don't wanna respond that way. And so we deal with this. We deal with error all around us. Just turn on religious television, and you'll see all kinds of error just being pumped out, and, 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 the, and the hundreds of books that are published that have error in them, and how do we respond to that? We deal with that. We deal with the spiritism that's in this passage, right? This passage in Acts 19, we see the, the spiritual world being dealt with, and, and we live in a very new-agey spiritual world, and, and we deal with that. We also deal with people of hard hearts. How do you overcome a hard human heart? And so these things are, are within this passage, and I thought, you know what, we should slow down here a little bit and at least tackle this first one. And this first one I think is important to tackle because as a church, as Christians, I should say, and, and in dealing with this world, how do we handle this issue of error? How do, you, how do you handle it when you know you're going to a family dinner and Uncle Joe's an atheist and, and he just wants to debate you? you know, what do you do at that moment? How do you handle it when, when, when people come into the table and, and maybe they're, they, they, they claim that they're Christians but they're not and they kind of pump in things that are anti-Christian and yet they're kind of putting it all under the banner of Christ and you're like, wow, I don't know how to respond to this. And for mo- many of us in this room, that isn't just dealing with people in the marketplace or, or at the store. For a lot of us, that is just a family gathering. That's a birthday party. It's going home and dealing with your, your, your extended family. And so... I thought, you know, it would be good for us just to tackle this and see how Paul dealt with this issue of error. And, uh, and so we're going to kind of drill down on that today and uh, take a moment and see how Paul dealt with this error. There were two kinds of error that he had to deal with in Ephesus, two kinds of error. And, uh, and we're going to look at these two kinds of error, and we're going to see how he responded to these kinds of error. And in terms of understanding these two kinds of error, I think it'll be very helpful for you. I think it'll be very helpful because sometimes you can be in a situation and the error pops itself up, but, but you've got to have a little bit of a category for how to deal with that because in dealing with the kinds of error that we deal with in the world, we have to recognize that, 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 that we're going to respond to it differently because there are kind of our two categories of error. And, uh, and, and as we see Paul deal with these categories, I think it will be helpful for us. Okay? So we'll jump into it here, and we'll see this. And I hope this is uh, hopefully very, uh, my prayer is that it would be practical and powerful for you. That you would, first of all, see the, the practical nature of what Paul did, and that you will see the power of God at work, overcoming error. And then I hope it becomes practical and powerful for you. That you would say, oh, okay, this is helpful. This kind of gives me an understanding of how to engage in the community that we're in. So, so let's deal with the first error. The first error that is in this passage is what, what I just want to call error derived from ignorance. That's the first kind of error that Paul had to deal with, error derived from ignorance, and it is oftentimes the type of error we have to deal with when you're, when you're talking to people. Okay, error derived from ignorance. Let's look at verse 1. It says, that it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Can okay, I you read this, okay, what does this mean? What's going on here? Well, if this is your first Sunday here, there's some of the details that, that you wouldn't uh, be picking up on because you haven't been with us. So let me kind of get you up to speed. Uh, Paul uh, is starting a third kind of missionary trip around He's in Asia, and he's kind of going to hang out in Asia a little bit on this trip, and then eventually uh, go back to Jerusalem and to Rome. He's got a little bit of a journey he's going on. And uh, while he was preparing for this third journey, there was a guy by the name of Apollos who was in uh, Ephesus, and, uh, and he was being trained by a couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And then he went off to Corinth to go minister there. Paulus was a gifted man, a gifted preacher, gifted teacher, brilliant man, and he's able to go and work with this church that that was started when Paul was in Corinth. And so now Paul is cycling back to Ephesus. He's been to Ephesus once already for just a little short time, and when he was there, he was teaching in the synagogue, and the people were like, man, you got to stay. We love what you're teaching. And he says, no, i got to go, and he took off. But now he's come back. And it says that when he comes back, He finds people who are following God. That's what disciple means. Somebody's following God. So when you think about a disciple, first of all, realize that they don't have a New Testament yet. So they don't have like all type of Bible we have and going to discipleship groups and things like that. These are people who are reading their Old Testament and they want to follow God. So that's that's the context. He comes across these guys and, and he says, wow, hey, look at these guys want to follow God. And They're studying the scriptures it's kind of the, the emphasis there, or, or kind of the backdrop behind the word disciple. And so he asked them a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now that question today has tripped up a lot of people. It's tripped up a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people kind of want to create whole doctrines out of this verse. But we shouldn't do that. We should just kind of stop and look at it in its context. Some people question, is this like a, is he asking about like a second work of God that God would put this second work on these disciples because they're already registered as disciples. But actually, I think if you understand the context of this question, you realize that this isn't the right place to ask that question. This isn't the right text to ask whether or not there's all this kind of stuff. In fact, this really isn't about that at all. I would suggest that this is actually about the first work of God. You know, the Spirit comes upon you when you believe. He wants to know what do you believe Where are you at in your journey? That's the essence of the question. Now you say, why do you say that? Well, let me kind of give you a little bit of backdrop to these disciples, and as the story unfolds, you'll you'll see what he's getting at here. Um, In Ezekiel 36, a very important chapter of the Bible. In fact, you should really know two chapters of the Bible, two Old Testament chapters, if you really want to understand Acts. I'll give them to you right now. It's a freebie. won't charge you for it. Ezekiel 36... In Jeremiah 31, you want to know those two chapters. In fact, I encourage you to read those this week. It will help you understand the book of Acts. Why? How come those passages help? Because in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, God unfolded what was going to happen when the Messiah came. These are passages about what's called the new covenant. The time when God brings a work, a a work that is going to be incredible. The Messiah is going to carry out this work and all kinds of things are going to change in the world. A whole boatload of changes are going to come. And this is going to come because Jesus enters the world and he becomes the priest over a whole new covenant, not like the old covenant, the first one where God established it just to kind of maintain our life. paying kind of the minimum payments on our sin, this is the one where Jesus is going to come and pay off the whole debt. And when he pays off the whole debt, it introduces a whole new relationship with God. One of the unique things that comes with this relationship with God is the promise that the very Spirit of God would enter us. That when we trust God, in that work, when that new covenant work comes into, into, into full and we say, man, I believe, I'm all in, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to follow this, I want to be part of this, the very Spirit of God has promised to come within you. So if you hear the message of Christ and you hear what he has done, you hear about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection his ascension, and somebody explains that. We would call that the gospel, right? Somebody lays that out to you. Ezekiel 36 says that, man, when when that happens, God's spirit is coming upon you. Your life will be radically changed. You'll get a new heart that will beat for God. God will take that stony heart out. Man, you're going to be living for him. Jeremiah 31 even says that, that at that moment, God actually writes his law upon that heart, And now you don't even need priests and people looking over your shoulder saying, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, because you're going to know God. You're going to be able to follow him from the depths of your heart. I believe Paul is going and saying, hey guys, did that happen? I know you're saying you want to follow God. I know you're saying you've heard about the Messiah. My question for you is, have you experienced all the blessing that's going to come when the Spirit comes upon you? And they say, no. In fact, we know nothing about that. It's an ignorance of Ezekiel 36, an ignorance of Jeremiah 31. Paul finds people who want to follow God, and you know what he's doing? He's trying to ask him, "Where are you in your journey?" Have you gotten this? So, Paul now has to ask another question. All right? Being good, he's going to ask questions before he starts to speak. Very important thing when you're dealing with people and you're dealing with error, to ask questions before you speak. And so now he asks another question, verse 3. And so he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Now you say, okay, those are two questions I would never ask anybody if I met somebody, right? You're on a train sitting next to somebody, and they say, "Oh, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. Oh, uh, you know, did the Spirit come upon you? And to what baptism? Right. What do these questions mean? Well, he, now he's connecting the dots. Now, these are kind of questions that would make sense in, in this culture. And let me kind of explain it to you. Baptism is always associated with a teaching. You need to know that. Want to understand what baptism is? Baptism is a response to a teaching. It's a response that somebody has when they hear a teaching. So, so baptism was all part of Old Testament ceremonies. In the Old Testament, it was called consecration. If you just look up that word in the Old Testament, consecration, those are those are baptisms that are going on there. A prophet might come and say, Our nation has sinned before God. Consecrate yourself before a holy God. And the people would fast, and husbands and wives wouldn't touch each other, and they would go dip themselves in a river, and they would come back out, and they would. It's a response. What's the response? You're a sinner and God's mad. Repent. That would be a, a, a message, a, a baptism message. There was another baptism message. It was John the Baptist. He came, and his message was this One is coming who's greater than I. One is coming. So repent and be baptized. So when he says, Hey, what baptism we you baptized into? Here's what he's asking What do you believe? Where are you at in in your understanding of this message? Where are you at in this process? And they're saying, well, we heard the message of John. So what do they believe? They believe a Messiah is going to come. But he hasn't come yet. They're ignorant, they're ignorant of the fact that the Messiah has actually come and accomplished his work. And the fact that this has happened like years ago, right? I mean, we're, we're many years into this process, and yet they didn't know it. He came across, here's what I'll, I'll say it simply. He came across a bunch of Old Testament believers, believers that are grounded in the Old Testament truth. And so he says, well, where are you at in your journey? Well, we've never heard of the Spirit, and the only thing that we know right now is that a Messiah is going to come. So, but we know nothing of the Spirit. Ah, so now he knows where they're at. So what does Paul do? Now that he knows where they're at, what does he say? Verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. And then here's the point. And by the way, that is Jesus. He's come. He's come now. Very simple message. The one you're waiting for has actually already arrived. And they're like, whoa, right? Verse 5. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, Luke, I mean, he's just got to summarize this experience. We don't really know what that must have looked like. But you can imagine how excited they must have been. Right? So on hearing this, what happened? Well, they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came just as God had promised would come. When you trust in that Messiah, man, that Spirit's coming upon you. And what happens, all the things that Ezekiel and Jeremiah says was going to happen in the, in the prophets as well, the prophet Joel, all of these promises because God was going to make it clear to Israel, man, when that Messiah comes, you'll know it. One of the promises was that, was that Gentiles, people who weren't Jews, were going to start being so filled with the Spirit, they were going to do all kinds of things. And there was going to be signs to Israel, man, This is the real deal. Repent, repent, repent. That's what's going on, man. The Spirit's coming, and these guys are in it now, man. I want to suggest to you, by the way, this isn't a second work. They have just become Christians. They've now heard the message. What I want you to notice is that Paul, when dealing with error of ignorance, is that he works at trying to understand Where the person is at, and then begin the process of moving them towards Jesus. We're going to unpack that a little further at the end, but that's the key right there. You're dealing with the issue of ignorance. You ask questions: Where are you at? Where are you at? And what do you understand? How do you understand this to be true? And then from that point forward, we're going to take them from where they're at and move them to Jesus. We'll get we'll unpack that a little further at the end when we get to some application. But there's a second error that turns up. Let's look at the second error first before we begin the application here. There's a second error, and that's an error derived from resistance. That's a second kind of error you'll come up with. People who will doubt or deny or come against the teaching of Jesus because they don't like it. They hate it. And so sometimes you have people, you know, a family member who wants to sit at the Christmas table and debate you, lure you into an argument. It's another kind of error. Okay, So we'll see how Paul deals with that. Look at verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is an interesting verse. Kind of keep this, you have to keep this in context. Paul has been to Ephesus once, Stayed there a little bit, and then left. And now he's come back again. When he was there the first time, the people in the synagogue said, we like your teaching. We want more of it. So he's now come back, and he's giving them more of it. Now what you have to understand in this whole story is that they have first accepted him. Come, we want to hear you. And he's been able to stay there for three months. They, they, they've opened the door. So it seems like a wide open door. You step into it. They first start hearing what you have to say, and and they're interested. And and notice what he does. He speaks boldly. What this means is that he's not going to hold back about Jesus. He's not trying to backdoor Jesus. You have to understand the pressure that you would feel if you were the Apostle Paul. right? What's his typical experience in a synagogue? Well, every time I go in there and tell people about Jesus, they try to kill me. Okay, so 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 that's a very real thing for him. It's really tough. I can't imagine what that would be like to to think about the fact that, you know, like you know, let's just put this in a really, really silly illustration. Super silly. Okay? Let's just say that every Tuesday for lunch you go to Subway. Okay, I'm telling you, this is really dumb but just humor me for a moment. You go to Subway every Tuesday for lunch, and, and one day you go into the Subway, and, uh, and you pray before your meal, thank you, God, for this food, and the manager of the Subway comes over with, with a bunch of knives, and he tries to kill you for praying. Okay. And then you go, oh, I'm gonna go to a different Subway, because I have to go every Tuesday. I have my ritual, and I go to the, my next Subway, and I go to pray, and the manager comes out with a knife to try to kill you okay? for praying. Go to your third Subway. Would it be tempting to kind of sit at the table with your eyes closed, or eyes open, and just kind of whisper prayer, God, thank you for this food, amen, right? With, right? I told you this dumb illustration, but wouldn't it be tempting to hold back? Because you think, boy, I went to two subways already, and every time I pray, the managers come out with knives trying to stab me. But that is what's going on with Paul, but Luke wants us to know Paul, would still walk in there and say, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to be bold about this. But then notice what else he was. Not only did he speak boldly, and Luke, I believe, wants us to see it so that we don't think that Paul was shrinking back in the midst of the very real situations that he faced, that apart from divine intervention, when he goes to a synagogue, people want to kill him. And apart from divine intervention in Corinth, um, he has been rejected to, to the peril of his life. But he speaks boldly. Notice what else. He's reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now I want you to understand what that means, reasoning and persuading. The idea behind it is that he is skillfully presenting the truth about the kingdom of God. Now you say, I thought Paul's message was the resurrection. It's the same message, actually. What he's doing is he's trying to explain to them all that was going to come about because Jesus came, died, and rose. And when he rose from the dead, Psalm 2 says that it's through that event that God established him as judge of the living and the dead. That's what Paul proclaimed in Acts 17. He is now the king of the kingdom of God. And all of the kings of the earth are subject to him. All of humanity is subject to Jesus because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And what he's doing is he is explaining this, but he's not just lecturing on it. This is the key. It isn't that he's got a bunch of facts in his head that he memorized, and he's just downloading them on everybody. He is actually walking people through the scriptures, walking them through the teaching, and, and, and presenting it in a way that his audience would understand it. Okay, sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we think, hey, I got this data. I'm just going to data dump on people. And that's not what he's doing. He knows the scriptures well enough, and he knows his audience well enough to know, not only am I going to explain this to them, but I know how to explain it so that they'll understand it. And he spends three months, I believe, walking them from Genesis through Malachi, explaining this to them. You know, just a little side note. And this is true in, in any church, right? You, any Bible-believing church, one of the things that you'll do, not just only in our church, but any church, is that you'll have Bible studies offered to you, right? So why, do, why, do you offer, why would we offer a Bible study? Why do we have you come here and listen to me talk for 40 minutes a week? And why would there be a lady study? And why are they doing it in the youth group? And why are there small groups and home groups and all of these things with all this Bible study? Well, part of it isn't just because we just want to fill your head with data. I really believe that part of talking to people in this world is to have an understanding of how the whole Bible works so that you can actually explain it to people. You can actually walk people through the process of what God has done in Christ so that they'll understand it and declare it, that they'll be able to get it and hear it if God would open their eyes. And this is what Paul is doing. He understands the word of God to such a degree that he can explain the word of God and he knows his audience and he's walking them through it. And he's doing this for three months so that they would understand that Jesus has brought in the very kingdom of God. This is a logical presentation. It is a sensitive presentation. And I would also add one more word. It's an experiential one. What I mean by that is he knows where these people are at and we learn from Paul that he, 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 he takes time to understand where someone's at and tries to move them from where they're at to knowing Jesus. And so this is an incredible moment. And, and for Paul, this is a moment where, where I believe he's treating it like ignorance. They don't know. I want to explain it to them. So he's starting at that point. I'm going to believe that this is just an issue of ignorance, and I want to walk you through it. Now, let's look at what happens to this with Paul. Look at verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is a really interesting moment. So Paul first is initially invited into the synagogue. Powerful moment. Initially invited, invited in, but then what happens? After three months of declaring Jesus, some people started getting a hard heart. Now, there's an observation you need to know here, and it's this: the word of God is never neutral. It's never a neutral moment. The word of God is either softening someone's heart or hardening someone's heart. It's either doing one or the other. So, an experience can be this. Let's say we're all missionaries. We go out to a field somewhere, and we've got a bunch of people. And we're beginning to teach them the Word of God. These people are in front of us, and they might all say, we want you here, we love you, we care about you, come to our community. And, 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 and then you begin to teach the Word of God. You have to expect that two things are going to happen. This is all throughout the whole Bible. You see this everywhere in the Scriptures. it actually even stated verses in this, in Romans 9, and in, in, in Genesis, and Exodus, Some people will begin to soften. Some people, as they hear the word, the word will be breaking down that heart. And all of a sudden, they're going to be like, I want more, I want more, I want more. Other people are going to harden. I don't want this. I want it my way. I don't want to unload my frameworks. I'm not ready to to come under the authority of God's word. And suddenly, as the word goes forth, they get harder. And as their hardness begins to show, the unbelief gets more and more fixed. I'm not believing what you're having to say. And then, hardness always leads to persecution. This is what Jesus said is going to happen. So maybe you're sitting with family members, and maybe they, you know, maybe someone's died, and you're at a funeral, and you're talking, and maybe, oh, this is really helpful. Thank you. you really, can, can you come over to our house? But then over time, you come over to the house, you start sharing with them, and what happens Maybe if the Spirit of God isn't opening their eyes, then they're getting harder, and then eventually they start to gossip about you and they start to come after you, and you become the you know the evil cousin in the home because they're coming after you. And 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 you're saying, wait a minute, what happened? What changed? How come it changed? How come it turned to this? How come it turned to where now we're adversaries? The word of God softens or hardens because it's always calling for a response. That's the key. guy. It's always calling you to respond. And if you don't want that response, and if you're not moving towards that response, then that response becomes judgment upon you. And then it begins the anger. This is what's going on here. After three months, people are going, no, I don't want to believe in Jesus. I don't want to hear what you have to say, Paul. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. And then suddenly they began to attack the church. You say, how do you know they attack the church? Verse 9 says, speaking evil of the way. The first church in the first century was not called the church, they were called the way. That was their title. Why were they called the way? I think you could figure it out. What was their message? Jesus is the way. Exactly. We know the way to heaven. We know the way to God. We know the way to eternal life. And they were so definite, people started calling, them, you guys are the way, people. You guys are so narrow-minded. The way. In fact, the early Roman or the uh, Emperor um, Nero said. He called the, the, the way, the first believers, uh, he called them atheists. Because they didn't believe in the gods. They only believed in one way, the one God. And that to him was atheism. Kind of weird, isn't it? So what happens? They start attacking the way. But they're doing it publicly. They are now standing before and... And now sermons and speeches are coming to say why Christianity is bad, why these people are bad, why they're horrible people. Now I want you to notice what Paul does. Our emotions should make you think that Paul was going to stand in that moment, pull out his sword, start rattling swords with these unbelievers. What does he do? He says, bye-bye. I'm leaving. Got the resistance? You're attacking the church? He takes disciples with him. Who are these disciples? Well, probably at least those 12 people that he dealt with before, and whoever else was in the synagogue that had trusted. And he left. He walked away. Now, we'll talk about why in a second here. But he walks away, and notice what he does. He goes to a university of Greek philosophy, the Hall of Tyrannus, named after a philosopher by the name of? Tyrannus, yeah, exactly. That was an easy one. You should have said that boldly, okay? not often I throw you the easy ones like that. Take them when I do, okay? Now you think, what is Paul doing? He's walking away from these people who, who at least are grounded or rooted in the Old Testament, but they're resisting them, and he takes a step back, and he takes, okay, everybody who's with me, come here. There is this Greek school over here that teaches Greek philosophy. They've given us a room. And we're going to teach here. And for two years, he teaches. Now, there's extra biblical literature <clears throat> excuse me, about this. It says that Paul was there and that he taught. There's two sources that reference this outside of the Bible. And in both sources, it says that Paul was there every day, seven days a week, during the lunch hour, what we call the lunch hour. So it was during the break time that he took the break time seven days a week. Somebody who had a lot of time on their hands did the math and figured out how many hours he taught there. Okay, I didn't do this math, someone else did. So that he was probably, he had roughly a a little over 15,000 hours of teaching in this place. So what's he doing? Well, if you're gonna resist and reject, I'm not gonna debate you this is not a moment for me to just stand up and shout Jesus' name louder than you. I'm not doing that. God's got to soften your heart. I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to take. I'm going to start working with the people who really want this, who understand Jesus and His kingdom, and what Jesus is doing, and what the rule and reign of Jesus means not only for this moment, not only for their life, but for the whole world. He's trying to put the whole context of the mission and the plan and the purposes of God all in perspective. He's laying the whole thing out. He is not just saying Jesus loves you and you can go to heaven when you die. He's laying out the whole kingdom of God, God uniting all things in Christ and all of the massive stuff that's there. They don't want to hear it, so he goes with people, goes to the school, and begins to teach people all that's involved with the coming of the kingdom of God, and notice the fruit of it. What is the fruit? Ah, thank you, Matt. I was thinking about that in the back of my brain. That needs some water. What is the fruit of that? Notice verse ten. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. Now in the Greek, the word all means all. That's a powerful word. If you're a Bible underliner, I would underline that all. That's a powerful word. What would have happened if Paul would have stayed in the synagogue, arguing with people who didn't want to be part of the kingdom of God, what would have happened? He would have been in a synagogue, arguing with people who didn't want to be, any have anything to do with the kingdom of God, the movement, the expansion, the mission, the progress, all of that. He would have just been sitting, there rattling swords with these people. Everyone would have been bloodied. No one would have won. Instead, he finds the people who are saying, I want to be part of God's kingdom. I want to be doing what he's doing. And he gathers them together. And it doesn't really matter where you meet, even if the only place that's open is a lecture hall in a Greek university. And he begins to teach. Now, this lecture hall would be bringing people from all over the world to study here. All over Asia, this was the place. This is like going to Northern Illinois University and saying, I'm just going to Find all the people who are interested, and we're just going to start talking about the kingdom of God. And we're going to let this leak out all over to this university. And as people go back to their towns and go back to their countries and and go out, suddenly now we got expansion going on. And suddenly, Paul's original heart that he had on a second missionary journey, which was to reach Asia, is now happening. Remember, he wanted to go to Asia, and God said, No, you're going to Europe. And he goes over to Europe, and now he comes back and he reaches Asia but he does it from a school. Amazing. He's not traveling anywhere. What has he done? He has worked with those who want to be part of the kingdom of God. He invested himself into them and they multiplied around all of Asia so that all of Asia, all the people in all of Asia were exposed to the word of the Lord. Not just Jews. But Greek the actual mission carried itself out that's pretty powerful so let's draw some principles here okay as we see error around us we see ourselves dealing with these similar kinds of situations what are some things that we can pull from this observations we can make about this mission that could help us I've made four you might be able to add to this list, and I hope you do. But I'll give you the four observations that, 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 that really impacted me, uh, and, and I'm, I'm praying that these become part, even more part of my DNA than ever. The first practical thing that, that, that hit me was this, that addressing error, when I'm faced with error, starts with a heart to complete people. Now, what does that mean, to complete people? I want to illustrate this with just an experience I had when I was a young believer. I'm a young believer, and I am like ignorant, really, really, really ignorant. Most of the kids in this room know more of the Bible than I knew when I first became a Christian. I was really ignorant. But I did tell a lot of dumb jokes. And so one day, I was with some people who knew way more about the Bible than I knew. And they were talking about the fact, and this is a joke many of you have heard me tell. I've been telling this joke for like 40 years now, and It's just a dumb joke. But anyways, so I'm I'm sitting there, and these guys are talking about the fact that in the church at large, there are um, all kinds of, some churches are strong in one area and have a lot of people that are really strong in one area, but they're weak in this area. Then another church is strong in the area where this church is weak, but but weak in the area where this church is strong. And, And these people are talking about, how do you kind of get people, get the church to even out a little bit? So these guys are having this conversation. I'm a young guy, and I kind of just said this dumb thing. I said, you know, the church should be like the Major League Baseball. They should have winter meetings, right? Major League Baseball, in January, all the owners get together down in Florida, and they start trading players, right? I got this, I got that, and they start I said, all the pastors should go down to Florida in January, they probably would like that, and they could just start trading parishioners, right? And then I said this. I said, yeah, you could say, you know, one guy said, I need a Sunday school teacher. You say, well, you know what? I'll trade you a Sunday school teacher for an up-and-coming tither, right? And so I said this. <laughs> and this man goes, he didn't laugh. And I appreciate those of you who did laugh. He didn't laugh. He looks at me and he goes, tithing? Tithing? That's an Old Testament concept. It's not in the New Testament. What are you talking about tithing for? And he just starts unloading about tithing in the Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant system. He starts to ask me if I'm an Old Covenant Christian. da 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 am I a Judaizer? He's just like unloading, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I am so lost. It was just a dumb joke. You've got to know, things fly out of my mouth. And they don't oftentimes mean anything, right? There's no theology behind it. But he is just unloading, trying to correct every wrong thing I said, and walking me through the Old Testament, and you ever had that happen to you? Someone just unloads on you? You see, that's not completing anybody. What he's doing is he's standing at this point of theological understanding, and I'm like way on the other side here, and he just starts yelling, get over here! You gotta be where I'm at right now! All right, question your salvation. Right, you know what I'm talking about. Paul, when he met these people, he wanted to know, where are you at? Where are you at? And what is the next step you need to take? Right? I knew nothing about tithing. I knew nothing about the Old Covenant. I knew nothing about the New Covenant. Those terms didn't mean anything to me. The last thing I really needed was a lecture on whether or not tithing is a New Testament or Old Testament principle. Right? I probably needed more of a talk of, like, hey, quit joking around so much. That's probably what I needed to hear. You step into a spot, and you're trying to move the person the next step towards Jesus. Then the next step, why? Because dealing with error has to begin with the heart of us, not a corrective spirit, but a completing spirit. The completing spirit says this, your your little baby gets up, starts walking, right? Could you imagine if little Shannon Johnson starts to walk up here in the front of the room, and Jeff just starts yelling on the first day, they start walking, run, 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 right? You'd be like, come on, what are you doing, Jeff? Just took two steps, quit yelling at her, right? We don't want to do that. In dealing with error, we want to care for people. I want to have a heart, I want to complete you. I want you to be completed in Christ. I want you to take the next step towards Jesus, not, be, not starting where I'm at, That's the key to the whole thing of dealing with error. You're not starting where I'm at. I need to start where you're at and help you get the next step, right? I think addressing error, this is something I see in Paul all the time. It's why he asks questions. It's why he asks questions. Addressing error starts with a heart to complete people, right? Second observation. Addressing error is committed to grounding people in a biblical understanding of Jesus, Discipleship is not, you know, a leadership team, we studied this book a couple months ago, and one of the points of the book is is saying, you know, Paul didn't disciple people so that people could become all that they could be. Paul discipled people so that they would be followers of Jesus. And what we're trying to do is get somebody to follow Jesus, not just be a better version of themselves. And so addressing error is saying, I need you to not only understand Jesus and take a step there, I need to do it through the Bible. I need to ground you through the Bible. And so wherever I'm deficient in my understanding of this, I should go get some of that built up. I should find somebody who can help me get grounded so that I, can't, I don't have to say, well, I don't really know all that stuff of the Old Testament, it's too complicated, it's too hard. I don't really wanna get into all that stuff. But, uh, but here, this will just help you handle your money better. You're not discipling people. You're just helping them handle their money better. What we want to do is say, I want you to be understanding Jesus. And if that means that you've got to get completed in that way, well then bring somebody in the journey with you. But don't back down from it. Step up towards it. Because I'm trying to ground, we want to ground people in Jesus. That's what Paul would do. He would persuade, he would teach, he would learn. And so take advantage of opportunities that are given to you to be grounded in the word of God. My heart in any teaching that that I do and any time you come, I want you to be so equipped in this so that you can have conversations with people about it. Because that's how we address error. But the third lesson here that I've learned is that addressing error is also not arguing or debating. Kind of made that point already. But Paul withdrew from, from, from saber-rattling. Our culture values this. You say, how does, does our culture really value this? Yes, just watch news television. We just, you know, rattle our sabers on everything. People just start yelling and arguing and and just Google any doctrine online. I mean, you'll see people just attacking other people and, and all this kind of stuff going on. We don't need to do that. This isn't the point. Paul never did that. He would step back at that moment. If your heart is hard, he would step back. Why? If someone's heart is hard the thing that's going to soften their heart isn't going to be shouting Jesus more. right? Shouting Jesus more doesn't soften someone's heart. What they need for me to do is get on my knees and pray that God's spirit would soften their heart. They need, to inter- need me to intercede on their behalf. Not me to go there and say, well, guess what? You're going to hate Jesus? Well, then I'm just going to be tougher on you then. Right? That's not what Paul did. He did this, which is our fourth observation. Addressing error is moving with those who are moving. He found the people who wanted to follow God, and he invested all that he had into them, and by doing that, the world was changed. All of Asia heard the word of the Lord, all of Asia. He put down the saber rattling, he found those that were moving, and he invested into them. Let's practically put this out, because I'm going way over, I'm sorry about this. You can see why we wouldn't have made it through the second two points, right? You might have a family where you might say, boy, you know, I'm the only believer in my family. And I got a lot of things going on. I don't want you stressing out about going to Christmas dinner and arguing with Uncle Joe who wants to debate creationism with you. You might have one niece or one nephew whose heart is soft. Invest into that person. Invest into the one person. And you invest into those who are moving. And all of a sudden, you've got multiplication happening. You don't have to worry about debating Uncle Joe and the issue of creation or whatever he wants to tack you on. Lay down that sword. If my families want to debate me, I put down my sword. I say, you know, I don't really want to debate you over this. God did not put me here to debate this issue. So more turkey, <laughs> right? That's not the point. The point is this. If you've got a nephew or a niece, invest into them. Move with those who are moving. I really believe that we could have a testimony. If you found the one person in your family who's open, I believe that you could have a testimony. I invested myself into these two people in my family, and my whole family heard the word of the Lord. I think we could say we've moved with those who are moving, and all of Illinois heard the word of the Lord. I believe we could do that. I believe this is what Paul did. This is the heart of dealing with error. So, if you have more, you want to add more observations out of this, add them. Send them to the church. We can put them out on our website. But I think that this is practical for us to think about. So, addressing error starts with a heart to complete, it's committed to grounding people in a biblical understanding of Jesus. It's not arguing or debating, it's just moving with those who are moving. Why don't we pray? that we could start seeing the fruit of that type of response to the error in our lives. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for these observations we could make about Paul. I thank you that incredible stuff happened. All of Asia heard the word. It's powerful. God, may all of the family members hear the word. God, I pray for those who who will go home to difficult situations. That holidays are stressful because of the antagonism that they face. God, we all have to deal with people who come to us and sometimes they're ignorant, sometimes they're hard-hearted. Lord, help us to be discerning, to be wise, to ask the right kind of questions, to know where people are at, to know when to take a step back, to know when to take a step far. Lord, change our hearts that we wouldn't be such that we yell at people to be where we're at, to confront them in such a way that we are just trying to push them to be where we're at. But give us a heart to complete people, to come alongside, to take the next step, to walk alongside people, and to teach them Jesus. Lord, where we need to be made complete, Lord, give us the desire to do that. Allow us to bring people in that process. And, Lord, may we be faithful so that all of the families in this church would hear the word of the Lord, that all of DeKalb County would hear the word of the Lord, that all of Illinois would hear the word of the Lord, that we could say that, that that could be written of us. I pray this would be true, God. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's k i s h bible.org.